The church has forgotten what a pastor is to be. You see, not just anyone should serve behind this sacred desk. So what is a pastor to be? What should, who should be a pastor? What expectations should we have of the pastor? Now, there's a lot of views when it comes to this question regarding the man's education, his family life, his background, etc. So are there some things that we should expect regarding ability or personality or beliefs? Can just anyone be a pastor or, or should we be picky? And how do we know? How do we know if someone should serve as a pastor? Well, too many churches have not thought deeply about these questions. And the result has been that many pulpits in this country are filled by unqualified men who have no business being in ministry. Too many churches are just happy that someone would want to do it. And it's a sad thing, and it's done immense damage to those churches and to the lives of their members. And the question is, as your pastor, what standard should you hold me to? As you look someday to the next person, what should you look for? So we look to expand our staff. What are we looking for? What is a pastor to be? Well, as we began last week, Scripture presents very clear qualifications for a pastor. It's very clear what we ought to look for. So let's look at it again today. First Timothy chapter three, beginning in verse one. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well and with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." So we began last week, we noted that this text divides up into two parts what we ought to look for. Answering the question, what should a pastor be? If we looked at the pastor's noble calling, and this week we'll begin the pastor's vital qualifications. Last week we looked at the pastor's noble calling. Verse 1, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. And we noted that the main reason that the church in America is falling apart is due directly to the belief that just anyone can serve as a pastor. Some see it as something a person does when they can do nothing else. You know, they failed at everything else, so let's give this a try. Some see it as the result of, of just this thought. Maybe I could do that. The result is pulpits filled with men who fail to understand the necessity of the call of God to fulfill this ministry. A man should never enter into the pastoral ministry without being called by God. If a man serves who's not been called by God, the result will always be a disaster. So Paul begins this section with the second of his trustworthy statements. A man desires the office of overseer. He desires a noble task. And from this statement, we learned three aspects to this noble calling. We saw that it was a compelling call. 
The call of God consists of an undeniable internal desire. Those who seek the office of a pastor must have a spirit-given, compelling desire for it. This compelling call means the individual would never be satisfied or happy doing anything else. Being a pastor is not something they do, it's who they are. Everything finds its fulfillment in the ministry. From the moment they wake up to the moment they go to bed, even in their dreams, they're consumed with this office. The, the pastor, it's not a fallback, it's primary. It's not for those who can't do anything else, but for those who will do nothing else. The man's not consumed with the ministry, he's not called of God to the ministry. We saw a second that it's a responsible call. We see this in the title, the office of overseer. This involves, we saw from several texts, Training and discipleship, Ephesians 4, 11 through 14. In 1 Peter 5, the pastor is called to shepherd the church. It's responsible to guide and spiritually provide for and protect the church and sometimes even rescue the church from harm. The pastor is to care for the people of God as a shepherd cares for his sheep. It involves serving them and counseling them, warning them, confronting them, but above all, feeding them. But... Not only are pastors to shepherd, they're also to exercise oversight. That means to exercise authority over the sheep. They watch over them for the purpose of knowing how best to lead them, to, to lead the church. God has designated others to assist him in this task, but the task of overship, oversight is primarily his, and it's a call to work. We saw in 1 Timothy 5 that the pastor is no place for a man who will not labor in his study, working diligently to feed his flock. As Charles Spurgeon said, beware the shoddy preacher. Because he's given, going to give an account to God for his work. And finally, we saw that it's a worthy call. It's a noble work. The call to ministry is not some second class vocation that those who failed at everything else do. What greater privilege than to serve the king and his kingdom. A greater opportunity than to live your life mining out the truths of Scripture and passing them on to God's people for their wealth. Now, when we consider the pastor, we need to recognize his noble call. But, but should we simply just allow anyone who thinks they have a call to serve in the ministry, in this position? Does a desire alone qualify a man to serve as a pastor. Well, sadly, many churches have fallen into that trap. They believe that because a man wants to be a pastor, well, then he most certainly should. But Scripture clearly teaches otherwise. And so I turn your attention now to the pastor's vital qualifications, verses 2 through 7. It says, Therefore, because it's a noble calling, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be thought of well by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So this section addresses the second way we are to know if a man, an individual, is being called by God to the ministry. A definite agreement and approval by God's people. But on what basis 
should God's people agree with and approve of an individual's call to the pastorate? Is it the man's likability? He's just a nice guy, so we like him. Is it his political power in the church? He's gathered together power structures so that he can control it. Well, Paul informs us that this should be based on whether or not the individual fulfills certain vital qualifications. Paul begins this second section with the word, therefore. Based on the fact that the pastorate is a noble calling, it has to have certain vital qualifications. It's not simply some hobby that someone fulfills to fulfill their fancy. It's an all-consuming calling with serious, eternal ramifications. And so, every church must require that these vital qualifications be present in their pastor. Note that Paul says, therefore, an overseer must. Note that word must. It's a word which means it is necessary. It is vital. These qualifications are non-negotiable. If a man does not fulfill these qualifications, God is not calling him to ministry. Placing an unqualified man behind the sacred desk will always result in catastrophe, the ruin of the church. No matter how nice or kind or lovable the man might be, no matter how good of a friend he might be, if he is unqualified, he must not be placed in the office of a pastor. No matter how, no matter how much you love the man, no matter if you watched the man grow up or desire for him to succeed, if he fails these qualifications, you place him and yourself in eternal peril. If you place them in this office. Now, as we look at these qualifications, they can be divided up into uh, many ways, into several categories. For our purposes in this message, I've divided the list into three categories. There's a lot of ways to do it. I've just chosen three. The first category of qualifications involves qualifications of character. If a man is going to serve as a pastor, there are certain character qualities that must be present. Verse 2 says he must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Now, you'll note that every one of the qualities in this list, with the exception of teaching, does not involve ability or likability, but rather character. Now, there's one other thing we need to note about this list. With the exception of teaching, everything on this list is something that every Christian should strive for. This list is not something that's reserved for like some class of super Christian, but rather it's a list of things that should exemplify all mature, obedient Christians. And so as we work through this list today, don't just think, well, this is just for pastors. This is not for me. The reality is this is a list for you. You see, the pastor is not a position reserved for a super Christian, but for a mature Christian. He's to be an example 
to the flock of what the Christian life, every Christian life should look like. This means then, as we see that the pastor must be a mature, faithful Christian, but it means that the path he exemplifies is the path that God expects of every one of us. Every believer should follow this path. So let's look at these character qualities. What character qualities should be in a pastor and should be in all of us? First, we're told that the pastor must be above reproach. Now, this quality sets the tone for all that follow. Uh, Some see this as a summary statement of the list. It's filling out the rest of the list, filling out this statement of being above reproach. Because the role of the pastor in the church, that of the shepherd and the overseer, because it's such an important position in the church and the kingdom of God, those who fill this role must be above reproach. But what does that mean? What does it mean that a man is above reproach? This word above reproach means not to be easily grasped or easily taken hold of. In other words, it means he's beyond criticism. He's impeccable. This means that not only that the person has not been accused of ongoing repentant sin, but that any accusation would seem, frankly, unbelievable. You would hear an accusation and think, man, I I just, I struggle to believe that. His reputation and manner of life is such that it is evident he walks with God and flees from sin. Now, of course, this does not mean that they are sinless or perfect. 1 John 1 very clearly states, If anyone says they have no sin, he is a liar and the truth of God is not in him. But it does refer to a consistent, mature Christian lifestyle that gives no occasion for public accusation. Today's Christianity sees two all too common practices which have devastated the church. The first practice is to lean heavily on the reality that all men are sinners. Therefore, any ongoing sin is just seen as kind of a character defect. It's just it's just who they are. Just because someone has some sinful aspects to life, it's not disqualifying. I mean, after all, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. Let me be blunt. This view is foolish. How can the church follow the example and leadership of a man they don't respect? Further, the sin will eventually reach a boiling point and the church will suffer disgrace as a result. This church knows that fact all too well. The second all too common practice today is to forgive a leader his sins and immediately restore him to ministry. Oh, he said he's sorry. Okay, he's good. Get him back in there. To immediately restore them to the ministry, however, lowers the standard that God expects leaders to follow. And it allows men to escape true repentance and forgiveness. We must hold high expectations for those who stand behind the sacred desk. They must be men who are worthy of respect. This is also something that all of us should strive for, is it not? As Christians, we should all strive to be above reproach. We ought to immediately seek forgiveness of sin and strive to live holy lives. I'm reminded of 1 Peter 1, 
13 to 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Reminded of James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained, above reproach from the world. You know, as believers, we are way too quick to act like the world. We too easily excuse our sin as personality weaknesses. Or just the way that we are. We need to call sin what it is. We need to strive to live lives that are above reproach. Do you harbor known sin in your life? Have you been confronted about sin and simply passed it off as people not understanding you? Or not understanding the situation or simply being part of who you are? Will you commit to live Above reproach. The second character qualification is that the pastor must be a one woman man. This is that phrase, the husband of one wife. Now, what does it mean that he needs to be the husband of one wife? There are a lot of views on this. Really, there are four primary views as to what this statement might mean. And so I want to briefly examine these four views. And I think that it will quickly become evident what is most likely the most the, the proper interpretation of this phrase. Uh, the first view is that God is declaring that the husband or that the, the pastor must be married. Single men should not be pastors. Now, I first ran into this view when I was interning at a church in Missouri. Uh, there was a faithful single man working in the church there, fulfilling all the duties of the pastor, working alongside the pastors, being paid by the church like a pastor. But they refused to refer to him as a pastor because he was single. It's the first time I was ever confronted with this. Uh, could this be what this text is saying? Pastors must be married. Well, there's several arguments for this view. Uh, marriage gives the opportunity for the pastor to prove his character. All of you who are married understand this. It is a area where your character is revealed. Um, marriage gives the, uh, allows for the, uh, a healthy pastoral relationship between the man and the women of the church. If he's not married, is his mind going to be consumed with the thoughts of the eligible women in the church? Not on the ministry. So, so marriage allows for the pastor to really to live an example of godly marriage. But this view stands in stark contrast to an important passage in Scripture and two important examples in Scripture. Now first, this view stands in contrast to 1 Corinthians 7. In that passage, Paul informs us that if one is widowed or unmarried and content to remain so, they should recognize the advantage they have and remain unmarried. It says there that they have the opportunity, instead of focusing those energies which would be spent on a spouse, they can focus those energies on the church. So clearly, Paul, who wrote our text here in 1 Timothy, 
did not expect the pastor to be married. The second, this view goes against the example we have in Paul and in Jesus, right? If we hold the view that the pastor must of necessity be married, then we would by default disqualify Paul and Jesus from ministry. So while it seems to me that it would probably be advisable for a pastor to be married, I I cannot see this statement making marriage a necessity for ministry. A second view is that this was a cultural statement. It was a statement against polygamy. Pastors should only have one wife. Well, while this might seem like a good argument from the culture of those whom Paul was writing, and we would certainly agree that the pastor should not be a polygamist, when we look at the first century, we reveal that this is probably not likely. You see, polygamy was not really actually in vogue in first century Rome. Only the wealthiest could afford to support multiple wives. Most people, the overwhelming majority, lived day to day, just struggling to make it through the day and could barely support one wife. Further, in the Roman culture, extramarital liaisons were not only okay, they were expected. It was expected that every man had a mistress. So there was no need to marry multiple spouses. Why marry? So while arguing against polygamy is certainly included in the statement, the husband of one wife, I don't think that's the primary meaning here. The third view is a prominent view. It's the view that the pastor cannot be divorced or remarried. Uh, this view certainly lines up with the previous qualification, that he needs to be above reproach. Uh, further, this view lines up with a qualification we'll look at later in that he manages his household well. However, there's some other aspects to this. I, I think it might miss the point f as well for two reasons. Uh, first, this would disqualify men who in their unsaved youth, divorced and remarried, but over decades since salvation, have proved to be men above reproach in salvation. This would limit the pastor to a group of super-Christians. Second, this would limit the meaning of the phrase uh, to one's marital status, not their character. Many men married only once are not one-woman men. Just because they are, remain, have remained married to one woman does not mean they are to be condemned or commended. It's, it's no indication or guarantee of moral purity. So I hold personally to the fourth view. I believe that this is not referring to a pastor's marital status, but to his moral sexual behavior. The adjective one here receives the emphasis in the phrase. The, the inference being that the pastor must have nothing to do with any other woman. All marital sins disqualify a man from the pastorate. A pastor must be a man of unquestioned morality. Who is entirely true and faithful to his one and only wife. He must have an untarnished reputation in the area of sexuality and marriage. This would disqualify a man who uh, is a womanizer. This would disqualify a man who is a flirt. This would disqualify a man who is addicted to pornography. He must be faithful to his wife in every way. Men, this should be true of all of us, though. 
God has called us to purity. In, first, in Ephesians 5, we're called to love our wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for it. This means we're to be faithful to her. We're to serve her. We're to love her. Men, be known as a one-woman man. Be known as someone faithful to your wife. So are you known as a one-woman man or are you known as a flirt, a, a Casanova? Be faithful to your wife. Date her. Serve her. Protect your relationship. You know, we ought to honor men like Vice President, President Pence who value their relationship so much they place protections around it, like, like refusing to be alone with another woman who's not their wife. Now, we would also do a disservice not to reemphasize a point we made at the beginning of November from the preceding section. Being the husband of one wife automatically and necessarily disqualifies women from filling the role of the pastor. It's impossible for a woman to be the husband of one wife. It's only possible for biological males. As you look through the rest of the text, it is all masculine pronouns. So, he must be above reproach. He must be the husband of one wife. Third, he must be sober-minded. Sober-minded. This means clear-headed. It refers to the way a man thinks. His thoughts are occupied by deep things. He's not distracted by the superficial, silly, temporal things or, or occupied with the things that only fulfill his physical passions. One commentator said, such a person lives deeply. His pleasures are not primarily those of the senses, like the pleasures of a drunkard, for instance, but those of the soul. He's filled with spiritual and moral earnestness. He's not given to excess in the use of wine, but moderate, well-balanced, calm, careful, steady, and sane. John MacArthur said, The prudent man is well-disciplined and knows how to correctly order his priorities. He's a person who is serious about spiritual things. That, he does, that does not mean he's cold and humorless, but that he views the world through God's eyes. So while he knows how to have fun, he's not occupied by having fun. He's not working for the weekend, as the saying goes. He's not living for his toys or his physical satisfaction. Rather, he's occupied with the deep things of God and the wisdom of God. He views the world the way God views the world. His life is absorbed by the strong desire for that which is eternal. Today, this means that he's not distracted by the shifting sands of culture. One day he's making this argument, and then things change, so now he's making the opposite argument. He's not quick to dive into the arguments of the world. He's not swayed by conspiracy theories. He pays little attention to the foolishness of social media. Instead, he seeks the truth like a bloodhound and filters every decision through the... Word of God. But again, this is an example for all of us. Christians ought to be sober-minded. We ought not be quick to live for silly things. We shouldn't be living for the weekend. 
not wasting our lives on toys and ease. We ought not be quick to jump on conspiracy theories. We ought not be quick to believe everything we hear and read. We ought to be more faithful to the word than to anything else. Job, family, political party. We ought to be like the Bereans who search the scripture for truth. The church should be known for being sober-minded. And the pastor ought to lead the way. Next, the pastor ought to be self-controlled. Self-controlled. This word means prudent or sensible. We saw this word back in chapter 2, verse 9. It means that the pastor must be a man who has control over his mind. He's not given to sudden urges or impulses. He doesn't respond quickly, but he's mastered his attitude and his thought. He's not swayed by human practices, human pressure, or cultural circumstances, but is anchored to the word. He has mastery over his thoughts and over his feelings. He's, he's not driven by emotion, but he's driven by principle, founded in God's word. The pastor must be a man who is well disciplined. He's mastered his baser desires. He's in control of all his faculties. This is a call for all Christians to follow. In fact, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Those who are controlled by the Spirit of God are marked by self-control. Oh, how we need to see this character quality in the church today. Too many Christians are marked by foolish, impulsive actions and arguments. They're controlled by politics, party, feelings, and the flesh, rather than accomplishing self-mastery through the word. They're driven by emotional pragmatism and desire, rather than scriptural principles and godliness. Christians, and especially the pastor, should be marked by discipline, not by foolishness. Next, the pastor must be respectable. Respectable. This character trait builds on the last. A disciplined mind leads to a disciplined life. This word respectable means orderly. It implies a well-ordered demeanor. This word actually finds its root as the opposite of chaos. The man ought to be, the pastor ought to be a man that lives a well-ordered and disciplined life means that he should be a person who doesn't need a manager standing over his shoulder, ensuring that he's doing what he's supposed to do, accomplishing his, tax, his tasks. He has controlled himself in such a way he can be trusted. John Stott, great pastor in England, said this, leaders are often left for considerable periods unsupervised so that they have to supervise themselves. To be sure, they are still people of, the, of flesh and blood with the same emotions and passions as other human beings, but the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Another man said, The ministry is no place for a man whose life is a continual confusion of unaccomplished plans and unorganized activity. Perhaps a test of this would be, would you hire him to work under you in your business? If the answer is, Ooh, I don't know, then let me be plain. God is not calling him to ministry. He has no business being in the pastorate. 
Again, this trait is not some trait reserved for super-Christians. Throughout Scripture, God calls us to work hard and orderly. Speaking about the way that Christian is, the Christian is to worship and live, Paul concludes, 1 Corinthians 14, 40, but let all things be done decently and in order. Colossians 3.23, Paul says, Whatever you do, work heartily as to the Lord, not for men. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 and 12, we're told to aspire to live quietly, to mind our own affairs, and to work with our hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let's cover one more today. The next one is hospitable. The pastor ought to be hospitable. This word means keeping an open house. The pastor is called to shepherd and disciple. This necessitates an open heart and an open house. We're to labor to engage with individuals. He needs to interact with his flock. That means his door is always open. Many of you have been in my house. Let me say again to all of you, my door is always open. We're always ready for visitors. You're always welcome. My phone is always on. It sits by my bed through the night. A pastor must always be available. It must be approachable. Please don't ever think, I've heard this, and it hurts my heart when I hear it. Please don't ever think, man, I don't want to bother a pastor with this. Don't say, well, you know, he's busy. I, I don't want to waste his time. It's not a waste of time. It is my privilege to invest in you. But this should be true of all of us again, should it not? We ought to love to invest in one another. If we're honest, this is a weakness of our culture here in the northern Midwest. Right? We're, we love to be lone wolves. We don't mind helping others, but we really want to be helped. We can do it. Let's be honest. For most of us, some of you are like my wife and have this incredible gift of hospitality. But for most of us, someone knocks at the door, the doorbell rings, and your first thought is, why is someone at my door? Go away. Right? That's our first thought. Wait, have someone over for dinner? I don't even want to have dinner with my family. Why would I have one to have dinner with someone else's family? That's kind of our Midwestern thinking. That's a weakness of our culture. God has called us to love others. We ought to seek to invest in one another. So let me challenge you with something. This week, call at least two other people in the church for no reason, just to talk to them. Check in on them, see how they're doing. Spend time with one another. When you see a need in our church or in our community, don't, don't wait to see if it gets filled. Fill it. Minister to it. Labor for one another. Be hospitable. Well, the next section is a big and an important section, this idea of being able to teach. And so I don't want to do it in injustice, and we've had a long service already. So we're going to pick up there next week. Um, my my one-week message apparently is now turning into three. But that's okay. We're not on a time constraint. But let me challenge you with this today. All these qualifications that I have talked about, they're all character qualities that ought to be present in every one of us. We ought to strive to be above reproach, 
faithful in our relationships. We ought to seek to be self-controlled and respectable and disciplined and hard workers. We ought to be hospitable, lovers of others, caring for one another. This church can do great things for God. If we cared as much about fulfilling our biblical roles like this as we do about interacting with all that's going on around us, sharing our opinions and everything around us. So this week, instead of posting on social media your view of what you think is happening right now, spend time in Word. Post on social media something God's taught you from Scripture instead. Let's bless and encourage one another in our walk with God and see God change this world for His glory and our good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity that you have given us to look at your word, to be challenged and grown by your faithfulness. Lord, I pray that each one of us would exemplify these character qualities that we have seen. Lord, this is my calling and my task. So Lord, help me to fulfill these as I ought, to be the example. I pray that your people here, that you have gifted, that you would allow them to hold me accountable in this. Help us to be faithful. Lord, we long for heaven. We're ready for you to come. And so we ask, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.